If you have a, a Bible, could you take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. And we will be looking at verses 1 through 25 this afternoon. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. I will readily admit I feel very well prepared for verses 1 through 8 and much less prepared for verses 9 through 25. So I invite you to process with me um, when we get there, this man, Simon. Um, I found an article this week on uh, NPR's website about the, um, the benefits and even the importance of forest fires. Now, certainly not all forest fires are good and they get out of control, but this is what this article said. It, it was talking about Yellowstone National Park. It said, the forests of Yellowstone are dominated by lodgepole pines, which thrive despite the poor quality of the, sto- of the soil. Their tall, skinny, limbless trunks are thought to have been favored by American Indians for building lodges and teepees, hence the name lodgepole pine. These trees produce what scientists call a serotinous pine cone. Resins hold the scales of the cones tightly closed with the seeds inside, and they can remain in the crowns of trees for 30 to 50 years. Without fire, the seeds would likely never be released. One man they quoted said, What's necessary for those cones to open up and release those seeds is the heat that's generated from a passing fire. Once the fire burns through those resins that hold them together, the cone scales open up and the seeds fall out. The early church father Tertullian wrote that the blood of Christians is seed, meaning that in seeking to snuff out Christianity by killing Christians, the enemies of the gospel end up spreading it. The, the fire of persecution serves to sort of melt away, if you can take the illustration, to melt away the resin that holds the seed of the gospel in, and therefore, in an unlikely way, and maybe in a way that's not totally desired, but is for good, in an unlikely way, it allows the seed to grow and to spread far and wide. Hudson Taylor, I'm not sure if this is true or not, is supposed supposed to have preached a sermon without words, where he took a glass of some kind and threw it on the ground and then went to the individual shards and stomped on each of them with his foot. And as these, as he would stomp on individual pieces of glass, the glass would spread even further. And he continued to walk around this room where there were Christians in China who were being persecuted, stomping on pieces of glass. And they all understood that as people tried to stomp out Christianity, it just ends up spreading it further and further. And we see this here in Acts 8. We watch the gospel spread. But as we watch the gospel spread in the book of Acts, we're reminded, and I want to remind you, that this account from Luke's pen is not intended to just be a history lesson for us. This isn't simply for your head for your knowledge so that you can understand what was happening in the church. But it's also an invitation, you remember, that the book of Acts is written telling us, let's join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. That it's not just consider this, but it's join in. That we are invited to be a part of the spread of the gospel to all nations. And today, as we watch the spread of the gospel, we're invited to be a part of it and its continued growth 
in our world, that we are a part of this story. And we find that in, in our passage today, we find this truth, that the gospel fills us with joy and empties us of pride. The gospel, when it's rightly understood, fills us with joy and it empties us of pride. The good word of Jesus fills us with the joy that we're seeking, the joy that we all as human beings with an eternal soul are seeking, the joy of being forgiven, the joy of being made right with God, the joy of being restored to the purpose for which God created us. But the good word of the gospel also crushes our pride. It it removes us from the places of, of power and prestige that we're often seeking and that we may even have achieved sometimes, and it shows us that that Christ is the one that is to be exalted. If we're going to be a part of the spread of this message of Jesus, we need to grasp the, the joy of the gospel, and we need to let go of the pride that would crush the fruit of the gospel in our lives, because the gospel fills us with joy, and it empties us of pride. With that in mind, let's read Acts 8, 1 through 25. We have a a statement here in verse 1 of Acts 8. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, sort of bringing it to a close, the martyrdom of Stephen there in chapter 7. And then it goes on, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we watched as Stephen, one of the great leaders of the early church, was martyred for his testimony about Jesus Christ. Stephen, we have said, appears like a shooting star in the book of Acts. He's, he's brilliant and he's beautiful, but he's only briefly seen. And while his time in the pages of Scripture is short, his life and his testimony and his death had far-reaching effects, and those effects immediately show up here in Acts chapter 8. So the stoning of Stephen is sort of a backdrop to the, the, what opens, uh, how chapter 8 opens up. And it opens up with, with three images, three pictures. One image is of the faithful and the devout men from the church who bravely took on the task of burying Stephen. We see that in, in verse 2. It's very simple. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This was a, a brave and a courageous act because for someone to be stoned was for them to be identified not simply as a criminal, um, but as an enemy of the Jewish faith and an enemy so much so that the entire community was willing to condemn them and the entire community was willing to participate in the execution of that person. So for these men to dignify Stephen's death by carrying his broken body from this scene and then properly bury him, this was a bold and courageous statement to everyone who saw it and heard about it. It said to everyone who was around that they did not agree with the verdict of the crowd. They did not agree that Stephen deserved to die. They said that this was wrong by burying him. And it was also the act of, of men who, not, who, who, who respected Stephen. It shows how much they loved him. And the, the great lamentation that they made over him reveals that too. It was a compassionate act. It was the act of men, too, who respected the image of God in human beings. But even more than that, they were trusting in something when they buried Stephen. They were trusting that Stephen's body was going to rise again, new and eternal at the return of Jesus, just as Jesus had risen from the dead not many days earlier. They were burying Stephen as a seed who was one day going to be reborn to eternal life. So the first image is of these men burying Stephen. The second image that I see here is of Saul persecuting the church. That's in verse 3. We mentioned this last week, but the, the picture is painted of Saul going from house to house, dragging out men and women who profess to be Christians and then throwing them in, in prison. It's interesting because later on he's going to refer to these actions of his life before Christ saved him as evidence of his commitment to the Jewish faith. He says that regarding his zeal for Judaism, it went so far to the place that he was willing to persecute the church with all his might. So in Saul, we see a man who assumes he's doing the right thing by trying to crush the church. 
this image of, of Paul is a specific image within the broader picture of, of kind of the third image that I want to draw out, which is the, the breaking out of the first great persecution against the church. This is mentioned in verse 1 and, and then in, in verse 4, this, this great first persecution against the church. Luke tells us that it arose on the, the very day that Stephen was martyred. It was that, that very day that this persecution started. And I imagine that it was fueled in part by false accusations against the church, just as Stephen was falsely accused of doing wrong things. In fact, remember Luke is writing to Theophilus about the validity of Christianity, and I wonder if he's not drawing this out to sort of show that the persecution against the church was totally unjustified that it should not have happened, that the followers of, of the way, as it was called, were not enemies of anyone, but rather they were simply coming against the pride of men and the unwillingness of people to humbly hear the gospel. The church really did nothing wrong in the city of Jerusalem, but what they did was good things. The problem was that they didn't do it under the umbrella of what was considered the proper religious authorities, and so therefore they're rejected and they're persecuted. But there's really nothing that the church deserves to be persecuted for. And so we see the stoning of Stephen. It sort of opens the floodgates for this satanically fueled anger that was found in people who had already been skeptical or maybe even envious of the disciples of Jesus. And so now that the religious authorities have sort of approved of this killing of Stephen, now they felt like they could act on this rage that has already been rising within them. And the result is a great persecution. And the result of this great persecution then is that the church in Jerusalem is scattered. And it says it's scattered specifically into Judea and Samaria. So we had that close-knit group. Remember all these beautiful pictures of the close-knit group of, of believers in Jerusalem. And this close-knit group of believers in Jesus that was growing sort of in, you might think about it as, as the nest of Jerusalem. They're, they're in this beautiful place, it's warm, it's comfortable, and now they're being pushed out of the nest. <laughs> they're being forced to, to test their wings in somewhere other than the place that they had been born. It's no mistake that the text says that they went into Judea and Samaria. You remember Acts 1.8, that this is our, our pattern, this is our outline for the book of Acts. Jesus told them that they were going to be his witnesses, witnesses of the resurrection and of the hope of the gospel, and that they would be those witnesses not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But in many ways, they had not obeyed the command yet. They were Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, and they were witnesses in Jerusalem, and that's all we've seen is them being witnesses in Jerusalem. They're staying close to home, they're close to one another, they're close to the temple. But after Stephen's death, in the name of Jesus, and as the persecution arises, they scatter. And as they go, they are preaching. You see that in verse 4, as they were scattered, they went about preaching the word. In fact, I think it's not just Stephen's death and the persecution that followed that inspired the church to go, but I think his message must have been ringing in their ears as well. This message that God does not dwell in temples made with hands, but in his redeemed people. And this allows the church to say, we can go, we can leave Jerusalem, and we can take the gospel with us. We can take the presence of Christ with us. We can take this message outside of the walls of Jerusalem and know that people can hear it, and people can be brought near to God. The nearness of the temple wasn't necessary. In fact, the Spirit indwelt 
believers had the presence of God with them as they went and proclaimed the gospel. And so the gospel can go anywhere and everywhere. It doesn't have to stay in Jerusalem. So verse 4 tells us that they didn't go with their tails between their legs. Rather, they went with boldness and they were preaching the gospel everywhere that they went. Stephen's testimony, his death, inspired widespread rage against the church, but it also inspired great courage and boldness. It was a push, and it was a push that the church needed to get out of Jerusalem. It was the fire that they needed to get up and go. It was the fire they needed to sort of melt away their fear and let the seed of the gospel bear fruit all around the world. It teaches us that God may at times use unexpected and even unwanted ways and means to do his work in our lives and in the world. We see this with persecution and martyrdom. It's often had the opposite effect of what it was intended to do. It's intended to squelch the gospel, but it causes the gospel to spread. Patrick Hamilton was the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation in the 1500s, and he was sentenced to be burned at the stake because of his witness for Christ. But as they tried to burn him, the fire continued to go out so that it took six hours for Patrick Hamilton to be burned at the stake. As people around the city and around uh, the area started to ask what had happened that day, it caused the message of the gospel to spread, not to be squelched, that they thought that by burning Patrick Hamilton, we're going to cause the, the fire of the gospel to go out, but instead it, it, it broke out even more. And Archbishop Beaton at the time said that, quote, the reek, because of the smell of this man who is being burned at the stake, the reek of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has infected as many as it blew upon. Beyond persecution, God can simply push us out of the nest before we feel ready. God sometimes lights a fire under us and he forces us to move. And these things are for our good. They're, they're for his glory in the world. I think about our church. I think about the situation that we find ourselves in without a building. And it doesn't make any sense to me. I look back to almost a year ago and I wonder why. Because it felt like in some ways we were hitting our stride. We were getting these ESL classes going. We were seeing ministry in the Philippines um, blossom. Why would God do this? Why would God take us out of our physical building where things seem to be moving forward and going well? Well, we can look at that and say, you know, this isn't what we wanted. wasn't what we had in mind, but maybe, maybe God's preparing us for something else. Maybe God's preparing us for a greater, more focused ministry. Maybe he's taking us somewhere else. And right now he's giving us this deeper desire to reach our city with the gospel. Maybe he's, he's helping us to see the wider body of Christ and the blessing of, of working with others so that we can be a, a catalyst for that, a catalyst for collaboration within our city of working with other churches to see the gospel spread. I don't know why God wanted us to leave Bardstown Road and the building that we had there, but maybe he's doing it for our good. Maybe he's doing it for the good of our church, for the good of our city, for the spread of the gospel. We need to trust sometimes that when things don't make sense and when things are difficult, that maybe that's God pushing us and asking us to, to do something different for his glory. So there's these three images that we see in verses uh, one through through four that are, are taken uh, they take us from Jerusalem into Samaria to a, a city of the 
Samaritans or to the city of Samaria, not, not sure, but this is a, a city where Samaritans were. And Samaritans were a, a sort of half-Jewish, half-Gentile people group. This is a, a bridge group for the gospel, as it were. And in this city, we find that Philip, who was thrust out of Jerusalem by the persecution, is now preaching the gospel. So if Saul is sort of a, a specific example of the persecution that broke out, then Philip shows us in part what it looked like as the church was being scattered from Jerusalem to go out and preach the word. Now Luke has a specific focus, doesn't he? He's showing us the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to, to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's taking us all the way to Rome. And he, so he zeroes in on Philip to say, Philip's the first guy that goes to the Samaritans. But as I think about it, there's a lot of other people leaving Jerusalem, and they're not just going to Samaria. And so there were probably so many unknown people, uh, people that are unnamed, that are taking the gospel back to their hometown when they were left, they had to flee Jerusalem. But Philip is the one that we focus on. So Philip arrives in the city, he proclaims Christ. He announces that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And alongside of his preaching, God grants that signs and wonders are done by, by Philip's hand. These are physical healings, the casting out of demons, and they serve to authenticate the message that Philip is proclaiming. They're not supposed to be the focused, but they are rather meant to show that what Philip is saying is actually true. That when he says God can forgive you of your sins, that people understand that, that that's a powerful thing and they see power in Philip so that they believe. And, and this works. Verse 6 tells us that the people paid attention to what Philip, Philip proclaimed. And the result of the message that he proclaimed and the signs that accompanied it were, was that, verse 8 says, there was much joy in that city. So the gospel spreads into Samaria. Philip is preaching boldly. He's working these great signs. And so I see a few responses as we think about this. A few responses for us as we want to join in on this spread of the gospel. The first is take the gospel anywhere and everywhere. Take the gospel anywhere and everywhere. It's a call, like Philip, to remember that there are no cities, there are no countries, there are no people groups that the gospel is not supposed to be proclaimed in and to. It's a reminder to be filled with courage that wherever God takes us during our days, whether the days of our lives or whether in a specific 24-hour period, wherever he takes us, the gospel can be preached anywhere and everywhere. It can be preached at work, in the grocery store, to the events we go to around town, in our neighborhoods that we live in, that these are all places to preach that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We take the gospel everywhere we go. Anywhere God sends us, that's where we take the gospel. So take the gospel anywhere and everywhere. Second sort of response that we would have is trust the gospel to bring joy. Trust that the gospel is going to bring joy to the people that we bring it to, and to our city. This is a message of forgiveness. And Philip's message of forgiveness is accompanied by, by signs that cause the city of Samaria great joy. It's both the gospel and the fact that people are being healed and demons are being cast out. That's what's bringing great joy to this city. The gospel is, is totally changing this town. 
And the message we proclaim, while yes, it begins as bad news that we're lost and we're dead in our sins apart from Christ, it ends with the wonderful news that Jesus died and rose again to bring us forgiveness and to give us new life if we will repent and believe. And that message, whoever we are, is accompanied by signs of God's goodness that are intended to bring joy. These signs could be visible and they could be miraculous. I don't doubt that God could do that. But they could also just be the good work of loving other people. Obedience to Jesus and his ways always brings joy. And when we teach people, as he told us to, as when we teach people to obey everything that Jesus commanded, we do it for their joy. The message that we have is a, is a message of good news. That's what gospel means. It's a joyful, life-giving message. Sometimes when we think about proclaiming the gospel, we feel like we're asking, it's like when someone, a telemarketer calls you up and wants to sell you something, that that's how people think about the gospel. And that's how we feel when we're supposed to do the gospel, preach the gospel to others, that we're picking up the phone and we're trying to sell people something that they don't really want. And maybe we are, they don't really want it. But boy, if they would receive it, it will change their lives. It will bring joy into their hearts and their lives. So when you see your neighbors and you think about preaching the gospel, don't think of it as I'm trying to ask them to do something that they don't really want to do. But see that this is a message for their joy. And as we take the gospel everywhere we go, we do it trusting that it's a message that brings joy and life and forgiveness. So as we think about trying to apply what Philip's doing here, we remember take the gospel anywhere and everywhere. Trust the gospel to bring joy. And then Seek signs that authenticate our message. Seek signs that authenticate our message. Again, I think these could be miraculous signs, maybe healings. Maybe like we see in other areas of the world where the dreams come and, and lead people to salvation because they understand who Christ is. Or these signs could simply be the good deeds that accompany the life of a follower of Jesus or the good deeds that flow out of a church that's committed to Christ. The hands and the feet and the heart of God are seen when we serve and we love others. You remember the song, how will they know we are Christians? By our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love, and love can be as miraculous a thing in our world as someone being divinely healed. Kindness in our world can seem just as miraculous as a demon being cast out of someone. Love for all people authenticates our message. So as we seek to proclaim the gospel, we also seek to evidence signs that authenticate the good news that we proclaim. How can we go around preaching a message of forgiveness while we're just bitter towards everyone? How can we go around talking about the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for them while hating others? It doesn't authenticate our message. But if the church and if we as people are filled with love, kindness, and joy that the gospel brings us, and then we tell people about that message, it authenticates it. And they might, by God's grace, just believe and repent and come to faith. 
Signs and miracles and healings are not a bad thing. But they're not the main thing. Remember, they're intended to be a sign pointing to the truth of the message of Jesus. But the fact is that that any good deed done in the name of Jesus could be distracting to the message of the gospel rather than serving as a way to authenticate it and undergird, and undergird it. So we could give food and, and clothing to people in need. We could give English classes to people who are recent immigrants. We could show kindness to our neighbors. And all these things can be a way to authenticate the message that we proclaim, to show that Jesus has truly changed us and he can change them. They're meant to be a blessing, and they can be a blessing in and of themselves, but they're also to serve this greater purpose of causing others to hear the message that we proclaim and to believe it. The problem is if the sign becomes the focus. If the sign, the thing that's supposed to point people to Christ and authenticate what we are saying, if that becomes the focus, then that becomes a problem. A sign is supposed to point you to the destination you're going to. Let's imagine you were going to Nashville. You're going to take a family vacation and, and go to, I don't know, go see someone at the Grand Old Opry. That would be a good opportunity, right? Maybe no one wants to go to the Grand Old Opry, but you should want to. Um, anyways, let's pretend that you were going to go to Nashville. And you got on 264 and you were heading there to hit that junction to take 65 south. And you saw the sign that said Nashville. It says it right there. This is how you get to Nashville. And when you saw that sign, you said, let's pull off the side of the road. And you just, everyone got out of the car on the side of the highway. And you're angling your camera so you can get a picture of everyone with the sign for Nashville in the background. And then you drove home. That would be totally ridiculous, right? And everyone would say that was the lamest vacation we've ever been on. (laughs) Because the sign is not the point. The sign is supposed to take you to the destination. The sign can be a wonderful thing. It's a helpful thing. It's a necessary thing. But that's not the point. And if we focus on the sign, it can become distracting to the place that we might miss what it's supposed to be pointing to. I think that's the problem with Simon. I think that's the problem with this man called Simon in verses 9 through 24. In church history, he's actually known as Simon Magus, and we can learn a little bit more about him. But we get some history here on Simon in verses 9 to 11. We're told that he was a magician and um, he was a magician, not, not in the sense of magicians that we maybe know who are you know, doing card tricks and things like that. But he was performing some amazing signs in this Samaritan city, so much so that people greatly revered him as a person who had the power of God. And things had been that way, we're told, for, for a long time. Verse 11 says, a long time he amazed people with all the, the signs and the, the wonders that he was doing. He was a man of power and a man of influence in this city. If you went to, if you lived in this city, you knew who Simon was. Everybody knew who Simon was because he was considered a great man in this this city. But when Philip comes to town, more importantly, when the gospel comes to town, people start to pay attention to him. And they start start to pay attention to the message of the kingdom of God and of Jesus as the Messiah. And in response to this message, many people believe, including Simon, we're told, And many people are also baptized. And yet, despite the fact that we're told that Simon believed, there's a hint that there's some trouble brewing with this guy. You see one small hint in verse 9. It's it's literally a a three-letter hint. It's the word, but. 
I'm not sure why that would be there otherwise, other than that it's that Simon is in some ways being set in contrast to Philip and to the work of God that was happening in that city. And so there's something about this joy-filled scene that Simon is opposed to. The other hint is in verse 13. Verse 6 tells us that the crowd saw the signs that Philip did and paid close attention to the preaching, but Simon seems to be amazed by the miracles that Philip performed and the miracles alone. That's what we're told. It says, seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. doesn't say anything about him listening to the message, does it? I think this becomes even clearer when Peter and John come to town. So we're told back in verse 1 that the apostles, in the midst of this persecution, the apostles remained in Jerusalem. And here, Peter and John arrive because they are sent by the, the church in Jerusalem after the church in Jerusalem has heard that Samaritans are believing the gospel. We need to see what's going on. So they're sent there to see what's happening in this city. And they, they get there and they realize that the people in the city had heard the gospel. They'd responded to it. They'd been baptized. But one thing was missing. They had not received the Holy Spirit. This should seem strange to us. Uh, this just seems strange to us because if someone believes in Christ, then they would receive the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what Pentecost is, is showing to us. But here what happens is Peter and John lay hands on those who had believed. They pray for them. And at that point, they receive the Holy Spirit. And presumably they receive it with the same sort of signs like speaking in tongues, just as it happened at Pentecost. I think we can assume there's some sort of visible sign because of Simon's reaction. Something happened and, and he saw some sort of power in, in Peter and John that he wanted. And it must have been evidenced in some way. Just take a step back and, and note that this is a point where Acts, I believe, as a book of transitions between Old Covenant and New Covenant is describing what happened, but is not telling us what to do. Sometimes we say it's descriptive, but it's not prescriptive. So it's revealing to us what happened there, but it's not saying that this is normally what happens or what should happen. Um, we find elsewhere in Scripture that belief in Jesus is all that's needed to receive the gift of the Spirit. We don't need to be prayed over, and you don't need to speak in tongues as evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. But as the church is expanding, there's a need to sort of authenticate what's happening. And the apostles are set apart by Jesus as the authenticators. They're the guys that are coming through and putting their stamp of approval on what is happening and showing that this truly is God. So Philip preaches the gospel. He's, he's been, had his, had, the apostles have laid their hands on Philip. But the arrival of Peter and John in this Samaritan town and the way that they pray for these individuals that leads to the, the Spirit filling them, this shows that God is truly in this, that this is not some sort of anomaly, that it's, it's a big deal that the Samaritans are coming to faith. In some ways, that, that's what this shows. It shows that, that Christianity is no longer just sort of what, what some people saw as a, a sect of Judaism. It's not just some sort of anomaly within the Jewish faith, but rather this is expanding out. Now we're going to the Samaritans. There's something different happening here. And it's going to get even crazier when we start seeing Gentiles come to faith. They're going to have to have a whole council in Jerusalem in, in 
Acts 15 to try to figure out what this all means because it's a big deal that this is spreading to other people. And so it's important for Peter and John as representatives of the church, as those who had been commissioned by Christ to do this, that they are there to pray for and to authenticate what's happening here. So this is important. The problem is that Simon, again, focuses on the sign and not the message. Simon focuses on the power that's displayed. And this power is impressive. He looks at it and he says, what Philip was doing is nothing. What these guys are doing is impressive. And so Simon asks for this power. He even says, I'll pay you money, Peter. (laughs) I'll pay you money to have this power. Well, not surprisingly, remember this is Peter, Simon Peter. Peter's response is, is kind of strong. Uh, J.B. Phillips writes one of my great, my favorite um, sort of thought-for-thought translations of the Scripture. This is how Phillips um, translates Peter's words, and I think it's probably pretty close. He says that this is how Peter responded to Simon. To hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? You can have no share or place in this ministry, for your heart is not honest before God. All you can do now is repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to God that the evil intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I can see inside you and I see a man bitter with jealousy and bound with his own sin. Peter never really pulls any punches and he doesn't in this moment. And Peter, like Jesus in John 2, that passage that Mark read, knows Simon's heart. By the power of the Spirit, he knows what's in Simon's heart, and he looks into his heart, and he sees not a desire to honor God. He sees a desire to be somebody great. I think that's Simon's sin. I think Simon's sin is a desire to be somebody great. And the desire to be somebody great is a dangerous thing. The desire to be somebody great apart from God or exalted above God or even made equal to God, that desire is a dangerous thing. This whole scene reminds us of um, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember they were seeking glory through a misuse of money and they were jealous of Barnabas, and they were looking to be exalted in the church as well. And they also are pretty harshly rebuked by Peter. Simon, who had had a taste of greatness, Simon, who probably had money and influence, he wanted to keep it. And he wanted to keep it in the same way that he had always had. He wanted to keep it with, with displays of, of, of personal power and with the, the influence of money. But the desire to be someone great, exalted to or exalted above Jesus goes against the message of the gospel. The gospel says something like, humble yourself and you will be exalted. It says that the one who serves is in fact the greatest. It says that character Holiness. These are the things that make a man or a woman fit to serve others. These are the things that make someone worthy of honor. Think about Stephen, a man who was worthy of honor. 
But sometimes we begin to think that the, the church and that God's kingdom operates in the same way as the world. That someone well-respected might come into, uh, well-respected in society might come to Christ and they begin to think that their status outside of the church should transfer inside the church. That because maybe they are a great businessman with lots of money, that they come into the church and they should be just as well-respected here as they are in the business world, that they should be exalted in some way in the church, that there should be special rules for them, that they should have some sort of a special status that's, that's given to them. In fact, Simon, known as Simon Magus, is regarded as the founder of, of Christian Gnosticism. You can look up more about Christian Gnosticism and see um, what they held to. But church history tells us that Simon was probably in some ways the, the fountainhead of this. And Christian Gnosticism held the view that there were sort of tears within the faithful, that, that there are some people with, with special knowledge that should be exalted above others, and that these sort of super spiritual, super special people don't actually have to keep the same rules and the same regulations as everyone else. They're in this sort of top tier because of who they are, and they don't have to live in the same way as everyone else. Now, that's an attitude that's that's latent in all of us, uh, that we think we're above the rules, that they don't apply to us, that, you know, no one else is supposed to park in the fire lane and run in and get something, but it's okay if I do it because, you know, it's just going to be real fast. And I, I know the sign says don't turn on red, but I'm just going to do it this one time because, you know, I have a good reason to. Um, or I know it says don't enter, or, you know, maybe there's a spot here sectioned off, but I'm just going to sit here because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm allowed to, I think, because I'm someone special. We all think we're special, right? We all think we're above others in some way. And if you've got money, well, even more so, right? Money can be seen as a way of gaining influence, even in the church. What we don't have, we think we can buy like, like Simon, because, you know, money talks. But no matter how much money talks in the world, it should be totally silent in the church. The amount of money that someone has or does not have should have no bearing on the amount of influence that they're allowed to have in the church. Someone came in here tomorrow and offers us all the money in the world that we need to build a new building so we can have our own space. I will readily accept it as long as they don't think that they can have some sort of say on how we do things or what our doctrine is or how the building should look. Because money is not the power. God is the one who's in charge, not the person who has the money. Money can be a master in the world, but it should never be a master in the church. It should be the servant of the church. Money is a servant of the mission of the church. Money and funds are, are ne never should serve someone's own personal interest within the church alone. But they should always be a way to bless others in need, to bless the church at large, to see the gospel spread to all people. And the amount of money that a person has should never determine how much influence they're allowed to have amongst God's people. I think that's in part what Peter is reacting so strongly against in Simon. He says, Simon, you think you can buy your way into this? You think you can offer me enough money that I'm going to give you influence over God's people? You think that if you give me enough money that you can be a leader in this church and we're going to give you some sort of special status? Peter says, no way. Uh, you ha there is something seriously wrong in your heart, Simon. Because the gospel, when it comes into our hearts, it takes the desire to be somebody great. 
and it changes that desire into a desire to serve somebody great, to serve Jesus, to honor Jesus, and to have no interest in stealing his glory. The gospel crushes pride. The gospel takes the desire to be somebody great, and it turns it into a desire to honor Jesus, who is truly great. Many look at Simon and ask, did he really believe? Joshua and I had a good discussion about that this week. I trust that Jesus knows the hearts of everybody. (laughs) And so I rest in that and know that that's true. But if Peter is right, if there's bitter jealousy in Simon's heart that seems to have kept the gospel seed from truly taking root, then I would say it seems like no. He, it says he believed though, right? And he was baptized. Of course, we know the parable of the seeds that people believe. And there's some in shallow ground who, when the sun comes, they wither. Maybe Simon's like the one who's choked out by the weeds. Remember, Jesus says there is a, a seed and there's belief and it springs up, but the, the cares of the world and the desire for money chokes it out. I wonder if Simon wanted to believe, but this desire to be somebody great choked out what he needed to, to humble himself and to walk in the ways of Jesus. If church history is right about him leading Gnosticism, Gnosticism in years to come, it would seem that he was a, wanted to, to ride the fence, that he wanted to be a man that, that honored Jesus while gaining honor for himself. And those things don't really work. The example of Simon is, is sobering. I'm processing through, maybe you can help me think about the different things that Acts is showing us. But I I think there's a lot of things where we see, here's a good example. Here's someone we need to follow with. Let's walk in the footsteps of a guy like Philip. But then there's also lots of people where we see this person serves as a warning. This person is someone that we need to be careful that this heart doesn't arise in us individually or in us as a church. And Simon, I think, is, is one of these individuals. And again, we see jealousy. It's bitter jealousy that's rising up in Simon's heart. He's jealous of the glory that Peter and John seem to have and that Philip seems to have, and he wants to have some of that. He misses what it used to be like before this guy Philip showed up. I was the big man. I had everything going for me. Everybody in this town knew me. I held this town in, my, in the palm of my hand. And now Jesus came. Well, maybe if I just attach myself to Jesus, I can keep my status. While people honor Christ, they can also honor me. That desire for personal greatness, it can be, uh, it, can, it can crush the gospel. A love of money, a distortion of its power can choke out the gospel. This is a strong warning, I think, to us. It's a strong warning because there's a way to believe and not believe. There's a way to say that you understand who Jesus is and to even be baptized and not truly have Christ on the throne of your heart and rather 
be seeking somehow to let Jesus be the ladder that gets you to some sort of personal greatness. I think we need to examine our own hearts and see where Simon might be in there, where this desire for personal greatness is. I don't think if you have a desire for personal greatness that that automatically means that you're not a Christian. I think, again, that that's something that's latent in all of us. I do think it would be wise to pause and say, is my heart set on glorifying Jesus, or am I using him as a means to my own exaltation? Be careful of that. But let's also just all pause and and think about, am I wanting to honor Christ with my life? Or has Jesus broken in so much into my heart and my life that the great joy that I have is not my own personal exaltation? It's not me looking great. It's not me being regarded as great. But the great joy I have is when others see who Christ is and they honor him. My great joy in life is lifting Christ up and seeing him honored. The gospel fills us with joy, and it fills us with a joy that's rooted in the glory of Jesus and seeing Christ exalted. And it also empties us of pride. We're no longer concerned about who we are and what people think about us as long as they would exalt Christ. Well, let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and I will pray. Father, we together confess that we often take joy in others exalting us. We take joy in others speaking well of us. We take joy in the prestige and the honor that we can gain in this world. And so, Lord, we renounce that. We ask that you would empty us of pride. Lord, fill us with the desire for the glory of Christ alone, that our greatest joy would be knowing that we are sinners that have been forgiven, that our greatest joy would be seeing Jesus lifted up in our lives, and our greatest joy would be taking the gospel to anyone and everyone, and knowing that that if they will repent and believe, that they will be filled with the greatest joy in the world, and a joy that will last for all eternity. Lord, help us to trust you too. Trust you when we don't understand what you're doing, when you place us into hard situations Help us to know that you're doing it for our good, for your glory, and for the spread of your gospel. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for hard passages that make us stop and think about what's going on in our own hearts. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen.